Wild Atlantic Law, a festival of legal ideas with a fantastic range of interesting speakers. Wild Atlantic Law will be held in Ennistymon, County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May. Booking is now open at wildatlanticlaw.com. Hello, and you're very welcome to Episode 7 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and Editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. And I was just reflecting on last week's show. That was Episode number 6. That's right. Uh, uh, you will remember we spoke with human rights barrister Colm O'Dwyer and had a fascinating discussion about the latest developments in asylum and immigration law. Great sure. response to that. Was, yeah. Really good response to that. Well, today we're getting all techno uh, and we're going to talk to two colleagues from the Law Library, Barrister Gerard Grork and Senior Counsel Stephen Dowling, who are actively trying to ensure that our traditional ways of doing business at the courts, we can be slow to move, Mark, uh, are enhanced and indeed improved by employing the latest technology. Uh, and I can certainly say for that most traditional of geezers, which is my good self, you're probably a little bit traditional as well, Mark, are you? I, I'd like to think a little bit more. No, you're a bit better. You've moved with the times a little bit more than myself. But this is going to be a fascinating interview. I'm really looking forward to it. I know it's going to be an education for me. But first, Mark, as always, let's look at three cases which you have identified from the Decisis website. And the first one we're going to start with is a family law case. And this is the case of Z versus Y, a High Court decision of Mr. Justice Barrett, and it concerned whether the applicant in the case qualified as a cohabitant within the meaning of the Civil Partnership and Cohabitants Act 2010. Uh, the court wasn't satisfied that the couple were living together, that seemed to be the issue, in the manner that was contemplated by the 2010 Act. But there's a very interesting backstory to this case. Both Z and Y were partners of a Mr. X, who it appears managed to maintain a subsisting marriage while cohabiting with another woman. That's right. So, um, in, back in 2010, they brought in the civil rights, the civil partnership legislation, but at the same time, also gave much stronger protection to people who are were living in a committed relationship with somebody to whom they were not married. So, effectively giving the rights of what, what, what I suppose used to be described as a common law spouse to somebody who was living with somebody not, but not married. But the 2010 Act very specifically requires that you be a cohabitant. Um, and the way that you determine a cohabitant um, obviously involves, generally speaking, being not only a cohabitant, but in some way financially dependent on the, yes. the other person, uh, very often being the parent of dependent children. But it is also a requirement that you no longer be in a marital relationship with somebody else with whom you're cohabiting. And that's the issue yeah. in this and case. And that's so, the issue so in this get case. To the details. So, the detail so Mr. X was the is the deceased in the case, and his um his partner, girlfriend, whatever term you you want to use, um, wanted to establish herself as a qualified cohabitant, obviously in order that she be in, in a position to succeed to a portion of his estate. However, the court looked at the, the situation and basically said, well, no, not only has he, has he not left his wife, he seems to be in an ongoing relationship with his wife. And I think um, <clears throat> well, it, 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 there's a danger in being prurient in these cases. Yes, but I think course, it is worth reading course. out. No, it's serious business, yes. I think it is worth reading out what Mr. Justice Barrett said. Um, Please do. Regrettably, each of Mrs. Y and Ms. Z has good reason to consider herself to be have been ill-used by Mr. X in his lifetime. However, I do not see that I can conclude on the basis of the foregoing that at the time of Mr. X's death, 
He had lived apart from Mrs. Y for a period or periods of at least four years during the previous five years. The marital relationship between Mr. X and Mrs. Y appears to have cooled over time, though not to the extent that they never enjoyed intimate relations with each other. Mr. X was certainly unfaithful to the point of allowing himself to be represented in a relationship with Mrs. Z at the same time that he allowed himself to be represented in a relationship with Mrs. Y. When Mr. X was not working and not out drinking, he appears to have spent hours with Ms. Z, presumably occasionally enjoying intimate relations with her. And I don't think we need to go further than That's that. That's probably enough. Just That's to probably say, enough. We don't to want to be prurient, as you said. But, exactly. you know, who said the law was boring? Okay, let's move on to the second case we're going to take a look at. And this is an intellectual property case. Uh, this is the case of Biogen MA Inc. against Laboratorius Lesvi LC. I think I've pronounced that correctly. I would pronounce that Laboratorius. Yes. Is that well, not right? You know, that's, that's your <laughs> Italian heritage coming right, out. It's, it's, uh, and this was a decision of the High Court, Mr. Justice Toomey, and it concerns a patent dispute between two pharma companies. Big money in this, I'd say, Mark. Uh, and this is about a drug which was used to treat multiple sclerosis, a very important research and a very important drug. One party held the patent while the other wanted the patent lifted so they could produce a generic copy of the drug which would be available to the public at large at a much more cost-effective price. Exactly. So, uh, as, as you said, when, when, when a patent is brought out, particularly in relation to a, a, a pharmaceutical product, it has obviously cost a large amount of money to develop, to, to research, to make sure that it's safe. I mean, the, the, the investment is massive. And so the, the patent protects the, the, um, the, the product for a certain number of years. Um, after which time it is then open to other pharmaceutical companies to bring out what's known as a generic version of the drug. Um, and that obviously means that the, the income for the, for the company that developed it is going to plummet. So the, the companies in this situation very often find a way of, should we say, tweaking the patent in order yes, to extend the so they can hold on to it, basically. Exactly, yes. yeah. So what happened in this case was that they had tried to extend its life, but... Uh, it had already been found um, by, I, <clears throat> I can't remember the name of the, the body, but the, 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 that effectively that it should no longer be under protection. But they went into court effectively on an ex parte basis. In other words, that, that they were the only side represented, the other side wasn't in court, to get an injunction to prevent any generic version of the judge, uh, drug being produced. Um, the other side then sought to, 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 to remove that injunction, to lift it, and the, the, the judge on looking at it said, well, effectively, this patent has been extended unlawfully. It's been found yes. that it shouldn't have been extended um, for a number of years. Um, but not only the, that... The period of years seems to be seven years. Am I right? Did I pick that up from I, my I, cursory glance at the case? I think they did say seven years. You're yeah. right. Yeah. And, and the other issue was... This, the technical board of appeal the, is the body. Obviously, yeah. it's generally, I mean, mm. uh, the availability of extra drugs and, and, and more you know, saving drugs that will assist people is a good thing and is in the public interest. But they also talked they talked about the fact that this would save money. That seemed to be a factor. And 8 million euros, I, I, where did they come up with that? Well, well it, it, it was specifically to do with saving money for the exchequer. Effectively, obviously, the, <clears throat> that uh, uh, one of the biggest customers for any drug is going to be the state through the, through the HSE. And there seems to have been an estimate that uh, the, the, the state in this case would be paying approximately 8 million more if the patent was left in place than if the um, than if the generic drug was available, that obviously the expenditures of the state would be substantially reduced. Okay, very good, very good. Finally, very briefly, let's touch on this case, and it's more a technical uh, issue of law, and it's about liquidators, how they should go about their business. Uh, and this was a determination about a liquidator uh, who was trying to take possession of property 
uh, the property was owned by a director who had inherited it from his mother, I think, rather than it being vested in the company itself. Uh, just very briefly explain, Mark. Yeah, so so basically w- when a company goes into liquidation, very often the liquidator needs um, needs orders from the court in order to do his or her job. In this case, the liquidator sought uh, vacant possession of this piece of property saying that the, there was a contract in place saying that the, comp- that the company or the liquidator ha- should have the, uh, the power of sale. However, the property in question wasn't actually vested in the company. It was vested in it was, the time of the agreement. Um, it had belonged to a woman who subsequently died and her son was the executor of her yes. estate. He was also a director of the company, but he was holding it as the executor of her, 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 of her estate. And in his defense, he said, this is not an application that should be made um, to the high court under the company law legislation. This is effectively an arm's length piece of litigation. Yes. They should be bringing this case by way of plenary summons. And Ms. Justice Stack, uh, in a very detailed and considered judgment, went through a lot of the, the uh, sections of the Company Law Act and was satisfied that, yes, he was right, that this is not a case that should have been brought. Yes. That if the if the company doesn't own the piece of property, it's effectively just a contract law action and they should have brought a, a, a plenary summons. Okay, very good. Thank you for that, Mark, uh, for those three very interesting cases. And we'll be back shortly with barristers Gerard Grork and Stephen Dowling. Silence in the Fifth Court. We're delighted to be joined in the studio this afternoon by two barristers who have eschewed the traditional quill and parchment that are the reputation of the legal profession and have tried to adopt more uh, modern information technology in their practices. One is Gerard Grork, who is a barrister who's been in practice since, well, he was called to the bar in 2000 and practice, I think, since 2002. Is that right, Jared? That's right, Mark, yeah. And um, he has developed a detailed training program called the Paperless Academy, which is all to do with cutting paper out of your practice. The other is Stephen Dowling, who has also been in practice since 2002, called to the Inner Bar in 2020, um, practices mainly in the civil and commercial area, and has developed a uh, program or a, a, a service called Trial View which is aimed at making remote court hearings and arbitrations more uh, streamlined, including both the evidence side of things and the advocacy side of things. So we're going to start by asking Gerard a little bit about um, your service. Um, So the Paperless Academy is basically you're training specifically lawyers who want to cut paper out of their practices. Uh, What led you to uh, think of devising such a program? Um, Well... I had, in 2015, 2016, I had started to try and get paper out of my own practice. And uh, over the following couple of years, I suppose a lot of my colleagues at the bar and solicitors who would see me in court started asking me questions about how I was doing what I was doing. And And when you say cutting paper out of your practice, you decided, right, I want to do everything on PDF. I want to do everything on screen and not, not be carrying large briefs around, not be carrying law reports and all that, that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it has grown to that. It's grown to the point now where I have I have zero paper whatsoever. I think the, the, the initial frustration that led me to go in that direction was when I was sitting in a hotel room in Galway one night for a, a, a high court case that was due to go on the next morning. And I was about to go to bed and I got an email from my instructing solicitor saying the other side have just sent us over their disclosure and their reports and here they are. 
And there were 60 or 70 pages of attachments, a variety of uh, expert medical reports, an engineering report and whatever else. And I'm sitting in a hotel room with a paper brief wondering, what in the name of God am I supposed to do with this? And what, you had a laptop with you? Or a I had a lap- or? Yeah, and I had the means to check my email, but I didn't have the means to print. I wasn't carrying a printer uh, yeah. in the car with me. So um, I think it was at that point that I decided that I was just going to have to figure out how to work on these documents without printing them out, how to tag them, how to highlight them, um, and how to make notes on them without printing them out. And I suppose that's what started me on the journey. And over time, I've realized that so many of the resources that we use are already in digital format. Sure. You know, uh, obviously, you're well aware of that with Decisis and Law Ireland. Um, but the, the legal diary is online. Statutes are online. A lot of the legal resources, textbooks, journals, consolidated legislation, it's all online. And to me, the idea of printing that out onto dead paper to use it as an information resource, it just doesn't make any sense. So I wanted to figure out a way to collate all that information where I needed it, make it easily accessible and be able to work on it as I would work on paper. Is there one device that you're using that? I mean, do you have an iPad Pro, for example, that you use? Or when you're standing in court advocating, you don't have a large book of papers, you, you have one electronic device. Is I have that right? one electronic device. And what I, is that? I, that is a Microsoft Surface Pro 7, I think, at the moment. I, mean, I think the 8 is out now. The, 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 the reason that I'm using that instead of an iPad, and I think an awful lot of people think that an iPad is the touchstone for a paperless practice. Everybody thinks I've got to get an iPad. But Apple make really good products for the creatives, people who are making movies, people who are making photo albums, who are recording music or who are doing architectural drawings. Fantastic. But the reality is if you're working as a lawyer, you need Microsoft Word. You need Microsoft. You may need Excel occasionally. Um, You need Microsoft products. And using a Microsoft uh, device makes a lot more sense for me. I have tried using Apple devices and I've tried using an iPad and it's simply it's simply a series of workarounds to get out of the Apple environment and into the Microsoft one. So it, it it's, doesn't it's, work. It's so incredible. Just, sorry, go on, Mark. Do you want to? I was ask? just going to say briefly before we turn to Stephen. Could you just in a, in a, in, a, in a sentence tell us what exactly does the Paperless Academy do? You're basically training people. It's a it's an online service to train people to go paperless. Is that right? Yes, it's a it's a structured curriculum based online course which is delivered by means of me uh, giving software demonstrations so that you can see what's happening. I just found it very difficult to explain to people how to do things unless they were looking at the computer screen with you. So we have video demonstrations and as I say a structured curriculum that takes you from the very beginning right through to the very end so you can learn how to do everything you need to do with the software that you need um, to to get to where I am now only a lot quicker. Jared, I have to say that's, I'm going to bring Stephen in in a moment, but I have to say, I thought the dream of every barrister was to be lumbering with that kind of trolley and have all those boxes stacked from Arthur Cox or A&L Goodbody and everybody's looking at you and thinking, you're so busy, you must be so brilliant. Are you foregoing all this? I am. And, and I have to tell you, I've been conscious of that from time to time when you walk into court with simply a tablet <laughs> under your arm. You look a lot Never less walk busy. Without a brief. Never you look walk a lot less a brief. busy than the people who are wandering around with trolleys or with, um, you know, an armload of briefs. Uh, so, yes, I've been conscious of that. I, I think I probably look like somebody who has nothing to do except carry a tablet around, but inside, I'm dancing. Yeah, well, well done. I think it sounds wonderful. Stephen, Stephen Dowling, tell us about Trial View. This is kind of different. This is a new development that's come in, and sort of in COVID, we all got used to Zoom hearings 
and various different other platforms that we could use in order to kind of communicate with the court, even though we weren't in court. But you were ahead of the posse with Trial View, weren't you? Yeah, Trial View um, is essentially a digital platform to allow parties to prepare for trial electronically and then to present evidence electronically. Uh, the actual origin of Trial View wasn't video. It's actually in in with Jared's space, it's in documentation, managing documentation electronically and enla- enabling parties to prepare and present those documents in court. The um, the pandemic brought along a whole new layer to that because okay. at, the, at its heart, what a trial is, is the exchange of evidence and evidence is both oral testimony and documentation. And when we had the pandemic, obviously trials went online. And what TrialView did was combine both remote hearings, that's video conferencing technology, alongside the presentation of electronic evidence. So already we were ahead of the curve because we were devised a system to allow parties coordinate and present evidence remotely. But when you go online to do a remote trial, you're already using a computer. You're yes. already online. And to the ability then to present and manage documentation is an entirely different experience if you happen to be conducting a remote trial. So what we did is we synthesized the electronic presentation of documentation alongside the the the, the video evidence. Wow. Okay. And will you just go back to yeah. the start? The idea day one. Where did that come from? Well, well, the core of trial view was documentation, first and foremost. And why did you think this was necessary? I was in a trial. Uh, it was. It lasted 150 days in the high court. Uh, it was um, involving approximately 250,000 to, to, to 300,000 documents. And we were absolutely buried in material for a very long period of time. And I was a junior at the time, so I had the hard edge of going through all that material. And we had a system, in fact, that we were using, which was called Trial Director, where documents came up on screens around the court. And everyone thought this is going to be absolutely fantastic because it's going to solve the problem. But as, I, as we went through that trial, I realized the presentation of documentation to screens on court actually doesn't solve the problem that we need as lawyers. Because when you get a screen that's showing a document, you can't annotate that screen. You can't basically take out a pen and tag it and highlight it and do the things that Jared just spoke about just there. What you need is the document to come up on your own personal device, live in court, as it's being presented and referred to, and to be able to highlight that and tag that as you go. And I realized... There was literally no system out there, in this, this is now 2007, that did that, that actually solved the problem of recreating the paper experience digitally. In other words, I'll give you all a copy of the document. It's your copy of the document. You can t- tag it. You can highlight it. But you're doing it on screen at the same time. Wow, okay. So that was the but core idea. serious stuff, though, Stephen. I mean, like, you know, you're talking, you know, algorithms and all that sort of stuff to devise a system like that? Is that something you know something about? Or? Absolutely nothing about, no. Yeah, um, so, so, so it was a kind of I very courageous to, step, wasn't it? Uh, well, I wasn't getting out the computer and coding myself, <laughs> Peter. So um, it was a journey from that point onwards uh, where I, I, I just had a, um, a kind of a, a curiosity about the technology that might be available. And I actually did personally scour the world for a potential technology that would solve that unique problem, which is not screen sharing documents, but actually live synchronized sharing of material whereby you're seeing your own copy of the document at the same time as everybody else. So through research and through uh, cooperation and finding some partners, we found that kind of core technology and built on top of that. And it was a journey from that. So, I mean, TrialView um, has been in gestation since probably 20, 
16, where it's been a kind of a private project. It's moved then into a proper company with serious investment in 2018. And we got our first big case in uh, the end of 2018, early 2019, when the McCann Fitzgerald and um, Eversheds took us on for the Quinn litigation. It was yes. a major piece of litigation. So it was used for the first time in that case? It was used the first time in that case. Wow, okay. And that was a case that involved hundreds of thousands of documents. And it was, trial view was developed primarily for that case in the first instance. Uh, and after that particular case, because it was proven as a product, it ran successfully. Um, I have to say it was a, it was a, a very nerve-wracking time for me personally. I've never been so scared in court all worked. my life. It worked. But it worked. Yeah. And come here, you're getting uh, awards by the new time at the moment, aren't you? You keep popping up on on LinkedIn. Maybe it's the, the same picture on you know on a loop. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our but I see you, you know shaking hands <laughs> and this new innovation. No, it's fabulous, Stephen. Really fabulous. Um, well, a lot of work for our marketing team. No. Um, what's happened since then is because because we took on video during the pandemic, that gave us a big boost. So we're now being used regularly in the commercial court in Ireland and across a lot of different um, cases in the Irish commercial scene. But actually what's really taking off is the UK because in the, in the UK they already have been doing this for some time. So for the last year and a half we've broken into the UK, we're doing cases in the commercial court in the UK and the te- technology and construction court over there and we won an award yeah, from the lawyer in the UK yes. which, is, which was nice so to get. Well done. No, well done, that's it. And how do people access the system then? Is it solicitors firms come to you and say, look, we need to manage our case. We have a lot of documentation. Your system works, Stephen. We, we, we like the look of it. Do they, do they buy it off you? How does it work? Yeah, it's a really good question because the, it, the, the, one of the things about trial view is that actually it serves a lot of different people. It serves judges, barristers, paralegals, solicitors, clients, experts. But the key is who actually was going to, is going to buy it in the first place. The answer is solicitors. Solicitors come to us saying, we've got a big case. It's got a lot of documents. We need a portal, one singular place where we can manage all that material together. And as a result of that, they come to us and basically buy the platform on behalf of their clients for the purpose of the case. But one of the interesting things about trial view is that usually when the party approaches us, they encourage the other party to share the cost. So in fact, you have all parties to the litigation using the same system, accessing the material in one specific place and able to inter- interact with that material and privately engage with that material. Um, and then can, it then can be presented very seamlessly in court. And can I just be clear, when you talk about privately engaging with the material, if I get, if a, if a document comes up uh, on screen and I'm looking at it during the hearing, whether live or from my own side of things, I can highlight it for my own purpose in such a way that nobody else can see it. And at the same time, presumably the judge can do the same thing and yet it's still visible to everybody else at the same time. Absolutely. Right. So, so you're doing the, the sort of electronic equivalent of kind of um, uh, uh, putting a post-it note on or highlighting. Yeah, what, what, what we do is we try to recreate the, the paper experience digitally in, in a very authentic way. And what's really important is, obviously security and privacy are number one on our list. So everybody is given essentially their own version of the underlying core document. Technically, what's going on, in fact, is you'd have one document, the statement of claim, for example, and that sits in our our system. And then what you are given is an impression, your impression of the statement of claim, your version of the statement of claim, where you can add notes, add highlights, add tagging, etc. And only you will see those private interactions that you have with that specific document. Um, So it is very much a, a... allowing you to access the material very quickly and very easily, but have that, that private experience with that document. The truth is, you see, when you get to any kind of volume, 
bringing up documents in court is a very challenging task. So what we really focus on is ensuring all that original material is available to everybody so that everyone can access it very easily and also ask somebody to bring up in court so that it can be accessed by everyone at the same time. And so in a case where which people are running through trial view, and I suppose this is a question for Jared as well, you've got, you know, it, I mean, you know, we've all been in cases now where somebody comes in with sort of six leverage folders of authorities where you, you want to open a particular judgment to a to, to the court, there's maybe one page that you need to refer to, but the judgment is 300 pages long. And the, 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 the custom at the moment in Ireland is still to print out the, not only the entire of that judgment, but for there to be a copy of it for the junior counsel, for the senior counsel, and every team, and for the judge. Um, so presumably, both of you are trying to solve the problem whereby you're able to say to the judge, look, there's an electronic copy of it. You can easily get to page 293, which is the reference that I need to to refer to and we don't need to print out the five plus copies of the judgment is that I mean b- both of you effectively are, are seeking to cure that problem is that would that be a fair way of putting it I'm, I'm seeking to solve that problem for myself mm. I, I'm, I'm taking a much more selfish stance than, and for the individuals you're the trading team. I suppose yes well each individual will be able to do this for themselves I think first of all, I'd like want to congratulate Stephen and the Trial View team. They've done a phenomenal job with the product. I think it's absolutely incredible, and I've seen it demoed. And I, I just think onwards and upwards. Um, my system is much more lo-fi. It's much more geared towards the individual lawyer or the individual barrister or the small office solicitor who wants to go paperless but doesn't want maybe let's let's call it a, a large upfront investment in technology or an IT department. You can learn how to do it all yourself. But in terms of your question, Mark, are we trying to get rid of the multiple copies? Absolutely. And where possible, um, I simply won't bring paper copies to court. And if a judge really requires one, then I will ask the judge for a little bit of time to go and print off what is needed. But I think in most cases, judges are quite receptive to the idea of receiving a digital copy. They're getting more and more technologically uh, knowledgeable and more and more capable of looking these things up for themselves. And Jared, can I just ask you, how do we get your product? Um, you visit the website that I set up, okay. which is called thepaperlessacademy.com. Um, you'll find uh, a free ebook there, which is a guide to going paperless. You'll find some email courses, which are short five, six-day courses that will get you up and running extremely quickly. And then you'll find what's called the paperless practice, which is the entire software demonstration, uh, talking through how I do everything and talking through how to use each piece of software that I use, all of which is free, by the way. The software that I use is all free, um, bar one or two small things that will cost you a few euro. Um, that's where you access it. But realistically, if anybody has any questions or anybody wants to discuss that particular product or discuss their own journey, just get in touch with me. I'm more than happy to talk to anyone. Okay, so this is something you're making available. It's kind of an altruistic contribution to your colleagues in the law library or wherever. It's a semi-altruistic contribution to my colleagues, but the reality is that for the last two years, in order to host a website, in order to have the course up and running, there are costs associated with it, and I have to cover those. Um, The other aspect of it is that I, I found in the past that where you gave somebody, and this was in the early stages where it was purely altruistic, somebody would come to you and say, I want to go paperless, how do I do it? And you say, well, here, go and look at this. It's free. That's the end of it. They don't look at it. So in a sense, I'm doing people a favor. I know that sounds stupid, but I'm doing people a favor by requiring them to commit a little bit more to learning how to go paperless. If they want to do it, they've got to put their money where their mouth is. And that, for me so far, has shown um, it has been reflected in a much higher level of commitment to actually getting through the program. 
So that's that's okay. the way it works. It's not, not fully there's, altruistic. There's no doubt that people tend not to be particularly grateful for what they get for free on the internet. People just <laughs> rather assume that it's just there for them. And I, I know that when we moved to Decisis from being a free service to a subscription service, um, there were there, there weren't people saying, well, it was so good of you to provide it for free all this time. So Yeah. Can, can, we, can we just broaden it out, lads, generally? I mean, this both of you are innovators and you're bringing new products that seem to be going down very well. And, you know, there's a, there's a positive reception for, for each of the products. How do you think the profession is moving? I mean, the legal profession, a lot of us would think, is the most traditional of prof- professions. I'm sure a lot of professions would claim to be traditional as well. Obviously, COVID changed everything, as we said, Zoom conferences, you know, uh, remote hearings, et cetera, et cetera. Are we going into a new era? Is this a new era of law now? You boys are at the at the, the cutting edge, obviously, in terms of bringing new uh, products to the market. But is is are we open to that? Is is the law moving in that direction? I think Steve. so. Yeah, I think I think we're we're, we're going to see. Uh, we are seeing and will be seeing the biggest change in terms of how we conduct our legal system in the next 10 years. And I think that has been on the cards anyway. I think as an industry, we have been behind the curve of most other industries um, across all the different professions. Uh, And we're the last to change. And that's because we are by nature a conservative profession and probably because by nature, the people who are leaders in our profession tend to be um, from from an older demographic, which is understandable because it's led by judges and senior practitioners and senior partners. But I think it's all going to change. I think the pandemic has given us a glimpse into the future uh, and has forced us to change our habits. But the actual um, idea that judges, uh, senior practitioners would have conducted very serious, very important trials online over a period of two years and did it very successfully has just simply demonstrated that um, this, this, this whole area is, is going to change. And I think it's it's fundamental because what people have realised is that to get access to justice doesn't actually necessarily involve um, the cost and the inefficiencies that often having a legal case bring. For example, travelling significant distances to go to for hearings, uh, for um, compiling lots and lots of documentation and printing out in hard copy, uh, conducting hearings whereby... You, your hearing could be listed for mention or for a directions so hearing. around is a huge problem, around. yes. And having that access to justice, people now realise that they can, can get access to justice in a much more actual, efficient and practical way and sometimes a more meaningful way because they can access it, they can have a familiarity and a kind of a connectedness with the court that they wouldn't have had previously. So I think it is going to change, change massively. I still think habits die hard. And what Jared actually is doing, I think is really, really important because as a profession, and I think it's, it is, a, to a certain extent, an age thing, because pe- most of our, our peers and those who are older than us, they grew up with paper, they didn't grow up with computers. But what Jared is doing is showing the way whereby actually it's not, it is not that difficult and actually could be far more effective to move uh, to, uh, to digital. But the move is coming yes. and it's going to change okay. the way and, we do everything. And Jared, just in terms of remote hearings, I mean... They were forced upon us to a certain extent. But I mean, I don't think you would have objected to that. I certainly didn't. I thought remote hearings worked wonderfully. I really did. Now, I mean, we, it's nice to be in court as well. But, you know, your view on that, remote hearings, did, what did we learn? You know, was justice the lesser for it? What do you think? Well, I think I, I, litigation-wise, I would be involved in a lot of witness actions. And I don't think the witness action is ever really going to go fully remote. 
I don't think it can. But certainly when you talk about the amount of time that lawyers and service users, the clients and the ultimate, the ultimate user of the system, the amount of time we spend waiting around, the amount of time that's wasted. I mean, when you try to explain to a non-lawyer how the system works, you get these jaw-dropped looks. How, how can it work like that? And we managed to eliminate an awful lot of that by the use of the PEXIP platform and other video conferencing platforms to enable us to log into a particular courtroom, say our piece, say what needs to be said in relation to a case, whether it's a call over a case management hearing or something of that nature where witnesses aren't involved, and then log off and possibly jump into another court straight away. Um, and that was a fantastic use of lawyers' time because it meant you could be, as I often was, you could be working away in your office with one ear on what was happening in court, waiting for your case to be called. And when it's called, you just drop what you're doing, you deal with the case, and when you're finished, you go straight back to work. Can I just ask you, can I take you up on that point about witness cases? Uh, and I mean, that is generally the view that you can't really do a witness case unless you're in the room with the witness and you can see the white of their eyes and all that sort of stuff. Is that a bit of a card? I don't believe so, because it's not just a matter of seeing the white of the witness's eyes. It's a matter of being able to um, see and sense the reactions of everybody else who's taking part in the litigation. Um, let's forget about juries for a minute, but if you're dealing with a witness and you have uh, counsel on the opposite side, you have a judge who's listening, you probably have other witnesses or other people who are involved in the litigation in the body of the court, and you can measure their responses to the evidence that's being given um, in very subtle ways. It's very, very difficult to do that on a video conferencing platform. Yes. Now, I believe there are platforms that will enable you to see all of the parties in the room. In fact, I think that was something that Trial View pioneered in terms of saying, we're not just going to show you the person you're speaking with, we're going to show you everybody. Um, but I still think it's, it's, it's very difficult okay. to see how that oh, very good. Work. Well, well explained. Well, but Stephen, do you have a view just, on that? Yeah. Just a response to that. I, I think when it comes to the critical witness, there's no doubt Jared's right. There's no doubt body language, being in the room, sensing uh, the, the authenticity of that answer and watching the reactions. You need to be in the room. No question about it. But the truth is, in a lot of witness actions, you have very rudimentary witnesses who are there literally to prove, uh, to, to stand over certain proofs, to fill in certain gaps, to provide information to the court. So often expert witnesses are there essentially as a guide to the judge as opposed to um, giving evidence on facts which will be relevant in terms of credibility. And I do think, in fact, that the remote experience can be used to great effect whereby you choose those witnesses who need to be there and those witnesses who can give evidence remotely. But the other thing about remote evidence is that what does the witness do when he's not giving evidence? The, the remote facility is amazing for having clients, having witnesses who can follow everything remotely, follow their opposite number remotely, without having to be there every single day in court. And that facility, in fact, is, 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 um, is made, you know, made, made, made much easier by remote hearings. And I, I think the future, in fact, of all, of all hearings is going to be a hybrid, yes. where you have remote participation. And then for the critical piece, you can have barristers in court, uh, the judge in court, and you can have peripheral players following on. And you just cut to a video screen for, for somebody, as you say, 
a more rudimentary witness. And, and you know, even something like in PI cases, you don't want to take hospital consultants away from their patients. Exactly. You know what I mean? They can and, give their evidence and, 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 and go, back, people, go back to the operating theatre. Sorry, and, Mark. And people who, who, at the moment, I mean, it's so common in personal injuries cases to be flying medical experts over from the UK, whatever, and it makes so much more sense for them to be giving evidence online. And if somebody wants to insist on them giving evidence in person, there should probably be a sort of a, a, a cost penalty involved if the judge determines it was uh, unnecessary to do so. Um, exactly. And one of the things we're doing at Trial View, actually, is we're doing a lot of statutory hearings for fitness to practice bodies, like Medical sure. Council, Solicitors Disciplinary Tribunal. And what we do there is that the hearings tend to be remote, but the great facility is that when they have witnesses coming in, whether it be doctors, nurses, other professionals, they're not hanging around for days waiting to give their evidence, which can may only take 15 minutes. Sure. They can basically be ready, be called online, and they don't lose time in terms of their, their own particular profession. So it's very, very useful. For them. I suppose one aspect I, I know would be of concern to a lot of people is the, the fact that if you're involved in an online hearing, it's very easy to only have one eye on what's going on. You know, like the, 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 the online lecture, it's very easy to have the, the lecture in the background while you're doing something else and kind of look up every so often. And similarly with, uh, you know, if, if it's something that requires somebody's full attention, it's very easy not to give it the same attention if you're dealing with an online hearing as opposed to a, to a physical hearing. And do you think there's anything you can do to sort of to, to, to focus the minds of the, the, the participants? Or is that, that really has to be a matter for them, doesn't it? I think it has to be a matter for them. I mean, the person who really needs to pay attention is the judge or the judges or the arbitrator or the arbitrators. They're the ones whose attention uh, is vital that they pay full attention. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that those decision makers are paying less attention because they're watching a screen. Although, I mean, the temptation might be there. But my sense of it is that any person who's conscientious about their job will actually pay full attention, whether it's remote or whether it's not. Um, as for whether the lawyers are paying full attention, well, that's a matter for the clients to, to monitor. <laughs> oh, absolutely we are. Absolutely we are. Lads, final question in relation to this. How are the courts set up for technology? Obviously, there was a massive investment over COVID, uh, and we know that they have great plans for the future. But what would you guys say? I mean, you're much more cutting edge than I am. I would have thought this, the system has improved. Is it good enough? Do we need much more investment? It's very difficult to say. I think the I think the ICT plans and ICT um policies that have been published by the court service are very impressive and they have they have very good plans. I think the problem for the court service is and always has been that they're not able to get funding from the exchequer to do what they need to do. Um, as to how they're set up now, I think I would have to say I think they're set up as well as they could be. I think they're making very good use of the resources they have. Okay. Um, and we've come a long way since, say, I started in practice in terms of the technology that's available with digital audio recording, video link evidence, all of those capabilities. There's a lot more that could be done, but there's a balance there that has to be struck. Stephen, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's a there's a long journey to go, uh, and I do think that. But I do think there's been significant efforts over the last three years, in particular, and they do have uh, a, um, a serious plan in place. I think the problem that they have is that that they need to start from a big picture perspective. They're not just dealing with the big cases that we might be familiar with with lots of documents. They have to look at it from a global perspective. And getting systems working across the board is a very, very big job. I do think, however, that if if you want to get fully virtual and fully digital, you will need to invest more in the in the court's infrastructure themselves. And things like just screens around the room, 
uh, ensuring that the the sound and microphones are working in all the different courts, ensuring there's Wi-Fi in all the all in the courts, ensuring there's cameras in all the courts. That does need to be yes, a huge investment. And there has been huge investment in fairness. Yeah, yeah, in fairness, we, in, a previous, more. in yeah. a previous iteration of this podcast, Mark, uh, we talked to Angela Denning. Sure. And she had great ambitions, yeah. you know, and really wanted to be kind of cutting yeah. edge and really wanted to move with the times. Sure. Okay, we've, we've had a fabulous interview with the two lads. Come on, we, we have to we, ask yeah, the, the books. The, the, final, books. the final question books. for uh, for both of you. But we'll, we'll go to Stephen first. Uh, do you have a book or maybe a film that you would recommend to your colleagues or to any law students who may be following in your footsteps? Um, well, there's one book I would recommend for law, for law students who want to think differently, and that is uh, a book by Peter Thiel, a controversial character, uh, whose, whose views I wouldn't necessarily espouse, but who was one of the founders of PayPal, along with Elon Musk. But Peter Thiel was a, a, a law student in Yale University. Very, very bright guy. Um, achieved um, huge success as a student, so much so that he was nominated or basically uh, got through to the last interview to be a judicial researcher for the Supreme Court of the United States. Got to the very last interview and didn't get the job was so devastated by not getting the job that he left the law entirely. And set up PayPal. And found himself in PayPal. <laughs> but his point was... was Terrible a, move. His point was an interesting one. He said he grew up in a generation, as we, have, we all have done, where his parents saw success as being in the professions, as a lawyer or as a doctor. And therefore, all of his generation were killing themselves to be top of the legal pile or top of the medical pile. And what they were all missing was that, in fact, when you've got brains and you've got ambition, you've got kind of chutzpah to you, there's huge opportunities in between those spaces, within the profession and in between the professions. So keep your eyes out for those alternative opportunities. Wow. Okay. And Jared, have you a, a book you'd like to recommend? Um, yes. Um, I know that Ruan McCormick's Supreme Court has been recommended twice already, so I'm not going there. Uh, I'm sure everybody's aware of Richard Susskind's Tomorrow's Lawyers, so I'm not going there. I read a lovely book last year by an English barrister called Sarah Langford, and it's called In Your Defence. And in it, chapter by chapter, she goes through a variety of uh, criminal cases that she was involved in, um, but really looks at the human side of what's going on when you're representing people at the criminal bar. And uh, writes it beautifully, and really, for me, reawoke in me the reason why I do that kind of work. And she talks about, you know, being a voyeur into people's lives while they're going through this very difficult time in this very imperfect system. But it's a, it's, it's a lovely book to read um, for law students and lawyers alike. Um, and movie-wise, I mean, you can't beat my cousin Vinny. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, look, that, I think we've reached the end. Unfortunately, lads, we've run out of time. This has been absolutely fascinating. I have learned so much in the course of this interview. So Stephen Dowling and Gerard Grork, thank you so much for coming in and being guests on The Fifth Court. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. And that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guests, Barristers Gerard Grork and Stephen Downing for telling us all about the technical revolution that is beginning to change the way we go about our business. Mark, weren't they absolutely fascinating? They were fantastic. And I should just say, as he was leaving the studio, Gerard Gork said uh, he may have given the impression that the Paperless Academy was in some way a, a, a non-fee uh, fee subscription service. But there, I, there is a subscription charge for it. And if you look at the paperlessacademy.com, I think it is. I 
think um, it's all the details. I think it's there. the best money you'll ever spend. Absolutely, from the from the way he, he explained it earlier, it's it, it's a fantastic initiative, and absolutely, um, it's 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 well worth getting. Okay, I would like to say a big thank you also to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Podcast Studios, where we recorded this show, and they did an absolutely wonderful job, as always. If you have any comments or any legal stories you would like to raise with us, please contact us on our website or on LinkedIn. Uh, and Mark, as always, we, we bid adieu with saying share and share again. Exactly, yes. It's always, it's always good if you have any uh, colleagues or friends who you think might be interested, just, just send them a link on Twitter or LinkedIn or just through private WhatsApp channels. So thank you for listening. And from myself. And myself. Thank you very much. Uh, until next time, goodbye. Wild Atlantic Law is Ireland's newest and most exciting festival of legal ideas. Come to Ennistime in County Clare on the 1st and 2nd of May to hear a range of fascinating speakers. Have a look at the programme at wildatlanticlaw.com.